Hey, thanks so much for checking out Crossview Church Sermons and listening to this podcast. Every week you can expect a message that strengthens your faith and encourages you in your walk with God. You're about to hear a message from our lead pastor, Chris Dirksen. Well, today's Christmas sermon is called A Tale of Two Kings. A Tale of Two Kings. And in order to get to the two kings and do the comparison and the hope, because this sermon is filled with hope, again, I think that's been a bit of a common theme for us this past couple of months. But in order to get to the tale of two kings, we first have to work through some definitions and do some groundwork, do some foundational work. And so the first part of this sermon is going to be brought to you by three things, two numbers and a word. The number 14 The word gematria, by the way, show of hands, anybody here who knows what the word gematria means? Good. So we have to do a bit of work. And, surprisingly enough, many of you did not think you were coming to to church this morning for a Christmas sermon with the number 666. What do these three things have to do with Christmas? What do they have to do with the Christmas story? And what do they have to do with baby Jesus? And especially, of course, the last one here, 666. What does this have to do with Christmas? I mean, many people have, in fact, there's a whole, did you know that there is an officially diagnosable phobia surrounding 666? And I had to practice saying this word, it's so long. In fact, I wish I could have fit it all on the screen without a hyphen, but I practice this all week, so I have to say it, all right? So it's called hexacosio, hexaconta, hexaphobia, okay? It's the fear of 666. And people have this. In fact, some of you have it, you're just not diagnosed. <laughs> we used to, our, our, we had a treadmill in the past that would just constantly read out to you the calories you had burned. And I remember when I would run on that treadmill, whenever it got to 666 calories, I would literally inside brace myself a little bit, just in case, like at 666, it would only be there for a couple of seconds, but am I going to whip off the back or is it going to stop suddenly I'm going to go flipping over? <laughs> Because, well, it's like that's the devil's number right now. Again, we all laugh here, ha, 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 and, uh, ha, ha. But how many of you, <laughs> I bet you most of you have a phobia around this number. How many of you, if you got, and I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you, if your license plate came back with a 666 on it, randomly generated, would take it back and say, give me a new one? Most of you. And I know that. I actually looked this up in the news. It's a common thing. People, if they get 666 on their plates. In fact, actually, I saw one at Walmart the other day, and I thought, aha, the Antichrist has come to Steinbach. (laughs) He looked like a normal person, but we know better. But anyway, they actually, there's so much, did you know, okay, so here's a little bit of trivia. Just two more little quick pieces of trivia around 666. Um, Did you know that Ronald Reagan, how many of you are old enough to remember who President Reagan was? Just put your hand up if you can remember who President Reagan was. Okay, so a very, very famous American president of the last few decades. When he was out of office, uh, he and his wife Nancy bought a house whose house number was actually 666, and they had the city change it, actually change it. And you can look all this up, by the way. You can fact check me on this, but they they changed it to 668 because they were nervous about what that would mean to have a house with a number 666. U.S. second one, this is the last thing I'm going to say about 666 until we figure out what the Bible says about it. But anyway, what that has to do with Christmas. But last interesting little piece of 666 trivia, there used to be, from 1926 until 2003, one of the most famous highways in the United States ran through Colorado and Utah 
and uh, New Mexico, and it was Route 666. And the people around, it was called the Devil's Highway, uh, colloquially. I mean, the government didn't call it that, but... And, uh, but people were so freaked out about it for years. After, finally, in 2003, they changed it to US 491, which I have no idea what that has to do with 666, but they thought, any number but that one. All right? But anyway, 666, 14, and Gematria. And you say, well, what does this have to do with the Christmas story? Well, let's jump into the Christmas story. Oh, there's my little sign of Route 666. And another screen that I missed. Matthew 1 starts with a genealogy. The Christmas story starts with a genealogy. And Matthew starts it this way. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, a genealogy, for those of you who don't know, is just a list of your ancestors or your descendants. So your parents, you know, so whoever had you and your grandparents, the people who had them and your great-grandparents, people who had them, and on and on and on. That's a genealogy. It's the list of people who gave birth leading down to you. That's your genealogy. And Matthew, very first start, this is the start of his book. This is the start of the Christmas story. I'm going to give you a list of names that leads up to Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus. Now, there's two names in specific that are really important to Matthew that, we, that, that this is the purpose of this genealogy. And those are, notice is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham. So he wants to point out those two things. So why the son of Abraham and why the son of David? Well, I mean, son of Abraham, that's for any of the Jews. Matthew is a Jew. He's writing to Jews. That's just permission to play, all right? If you're going to be the Messiah, you've got to be a descendant of Abraham. You've got to be one of us, the Jews, all right? More what Matthew, and I'm going to show you this in just a moment, Matthew's going to focus even more on the son of David, all right? He's going to really focus in, in this genealogy on the son of David. Why is he going to do that? Reason? Because Matthew wants to convince his Jewish audience, and of course, us reading this a couple thousand years later, he wants to convince us that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. In order for Jesus to be that Messiah, there's a bunch of things that he has to do. There's a bunch of things that he has to fulfill. But the first step is he's got to be a descendant of David. The Old Testament was clear about that. If, 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 you know, the Messiah has to come from David's line. So that's the first bar Jesus has to, has to clear in order to be the Messiah. He's got to be the son of David. And so Matthew wants to draw this uh, to our attention first thing. Now, this is where things get weird, though. So after this, Matthew's going to list a whole bunch of names. All right? That part's not weird, although it's less than exciting for us Westerners, modern Westerners. We're not too excited by lists of names. All right? But Matthew's going to go through a list of names. But what's weird about this, and um, there's a couple of weird things, but first of all is that this list of names is very different from the other genealogy of Jesus, which is found in Luke. And that's a whole other sermon in and of itself. We won't touch that right now. But it's very different. And both of them say they are the genealogies that trace through Jesus' dad, Joseph. All right? So that's weird. We'll leave that for now. The other weird thing is that Matthew groups his whole genealogy, the whole list, into groups of 14. And I, I'm not going to read through all 42 names to prove that to you, Matthew uh, sums up the genealogy by saying it. All right? So he lists 42 names that he has put into groups, three groups of 14. So 
Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, at first glance, you might say, well, that's neat, three groups of 14. What's interesting, though, are there are huge gaps of time in here where there have to be more than 14 generations. For example, from Abraham to David is like a thousand years or more. All right? And so a thousand years or more is not covered by 14 generations of people. All right? You would probably have, I mean, depending, I mean, people in those days, first of all, were only living to 30 or 35. They're having kids in their early 20s. You would have more than 40 for zero generations between Abraham and David at a minimum. But Matthew lists only 14. And you have the same problem uh, from the exile to Babylon to Jesus. That's five or six hundred years. You'd have at least double the amount of generations that Matthew lists, which is 14, uh, in, in that span of time. So what's with the obsession with 14? Why is Matthew so concerned with the number 14? And that's where we're going to come to the second piece of our three things, remember I said it was going to be brought to you by 14, Gematria, and the number 666. Gematria was the ancient practice. It's not really done anymore, certainly not done in our culture. But in ancient times and in, in Greek culture and in Jewish culture, they did lots of this in the first couple of centuries uh, AD. But Gematria was the practice of assigning a numerical value to a name, a word, or a phrase. So here's what you have to understand. When we, in modern English, read uh, words, obviously, words are made out of letters. So when I read my Bible, there's words, but there's also numbers. Now, in our language today, numbers and letters are different things. So letters make up what we read as words, and numbers are for numbers, and we have different symbols for them. In ancient times, they didn't have that. Like, there's lots of things we take for granted now that wasn't true in ancient times. So in ancient times, they didn't have separate symbols for numbers. So their letters in many of the ancient language would just double as numbers. Does that make sense? So that would be like if we didn't have numbers like, well, I don't have one on the screen here, but you know what a one or two and a three and a four is. But imagine if you had to use A, B, C, and D, not just as letters, but as numbers. That would be like that. So in ancient, in Hebrew and in Greek, what would happen then is a person's name could also double as a number. So your name, so anybody's name, if your name was Joseph, if you added up the numbers of that, the, the letters or numbers of that name, you would get a number. So your name would have a number attached to it. Could be 120, could be 54, could be 9, whatever it is. Everybody's name would have a number, all right? Now, what's interesting about this is one of the most famous characters in the entire Bible, and one of the most important characters, especially in the Old Testament, but also to the promises of the Messiah, was King David. And King David's number, the number for the name David in Hebrew is 14. All right? So when Matthew is grouping his genealogy into groups of 14, He's being very creative, and he is, like, he's putting it in the pattern, and he's making us see, like, this is him being creative, and he's saying, 
Look, he's the son of David. By the way, son of David is Math, one of Matthew's favorite titles for Jesus throughout the book of Matthew. All right, there's like uh, more than half a dozen times where Matthew specifically, more than the other gospels, uh, focuses in on this thing that Jesus is the son of David. Why? Because he wants to prove to his Jewish listeners and obviously to us later on that Jesus is the Messiah. So David is 14. Matthew groups his genealogy into groups of 14. Now, we should just take a quick pause here though and pay attention to something. Sometimes Christians fight with each other and I'm not blaming anyone because we are all susceptible to this. But sometimes we as Christians will get into family disputes with people from other churches and other denominations and we get mad at each other because, and each one said over interpretations of the Bible and each one says, but we take the Bible literally. Now here's the thing about taking the Bible literally. One of the things we have to grow in as Christians and that will help us also grow in unity is to remember that it's not our definition of literally that matters. It's the writers of scripture's definition of literally that matters. I want you to notice something. When Matthew, I'm going to go back here for just a second. Matthew does not give us a heads up in this genealogy. He does not say footnote, psst, modern readers 2,000 years from now. I don't literally mean there's 14 generations. He just says there's 14 generations. And we come along, we just say, well, that must mean there's literally 14 generations. Except that if you read it that way, you're going to get a big uh, contradiction in history. And sometimes Christians lose their faith over stuff like this. Or you're going to, and you're going to get big contradictions with Luke's genealogy. But again, I'm just going to leave that off and we're not going to talk about that one. But you'll get, because Luke's genealogy has way more names in these gaps than Matthew's does. So the key to remember, this is actually one of the important things. And you know what else I love about God? Is what does this tell us about God? What kind of a God is this? That he gives us an ancient book and expects us as moderns to humble ourselves and wrestle with things. And he doesn't give us a footnotes and say, hey, moderns, this isn't how you guys would do it. Because we just say, well, if you want to prove that he's the son of David, just give me the whole list. And Matthew's like, boring. I want to put a pattern in there that is like 3D, that makes this son of David thing pop. And we go, well, then it's not literally true. Yes, it is. And no, First of all, we don't need to lose our faith over some of the messiness of Scripture. And second, and, and second of all, we don't have to always fight with each other over this stuff because the ancients thought differently than we do. And the beauty of it is we can marvel at the beauty of how Matthew has played around with this to communicate something to us. So now we've knocked out 14 and we've knocked out Gematra, but we're trying to get to this thing of it's a tale of two kings. Two kings are going to get compared here. Well, there's a second example of Gematria in the New Testament, and it's far more famous than number 14. Except that most Christians just don't, don't know it's Gematria, even if they knew what Gematria was. And the most famous example of Gematria in the New Testament is found in a verse in Revelation chapter 13. And Revelation chapter 13 says this, this calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and that number is 666. Now this verse has inspired countless books, pages, 
arguments and speculation. Wonderful, glorious speculation. Sometimes as Christians, we get mad at all the speculation out there. You know what? Obviously, God likes a little bit of mess among his people. But it has inspired lots of stuff. But I want you to notice two things in this passage that we don't often pay attention to. First of all, John is telling his first century audience to calculate the number. They're supposed to be able to figure it out. Second of all, he says, for it is the number of a man. He has someone in mind that his first century audience will know. Someone famous, someone powerful. If we take in the rest of the chapter 13 into account, someone who has persecuted them, has persecuted believers, there's a bunch of other stuff in there, but it's someone they know who it is. You say, well, who could that be? Well, fascinatingly enough, there is a very famous emperor who lived just a couple of decades before Revelation was written. And his title, his, and he was very famous for persecuting Christians, and there was also a conspiracy theory that he was going to come back from the dead. And I don't want to go down that rabbit trail, but there was a very big conspiracy theory throughout the, the empire that he would come back from the dead and reconquer uh, Rome and persecute Christians and Jews again. It was believed by so many people that in the, in the decade or two before Revelation was written, three different imposters claimed to be Emperor Nero returned from the dead to rule over Rome. And people believed it because so many people expected it. And so Caesar Nero, now by the way, some of you are thinking, oh, Chris, this is just some, one of your little unique little flights of fantasy. You did a little math, you have a math degree, and you played around with 666, and you came up with Emperor Nero, and I've never heard this before. So just so you know, and if any of you wants to see the spreadsheet, I will send it to you. I have this like weird hobby in the evenings where I like to go through and document what all the top commentaries on Revelation think about big topics. I have, I have 11 that I've, I'm working through so far. My goal is to get it up to 20, like the top 20. All right? On this issue of 666, I've worked through nine trusted, like, you know, like the commentaries out there by the big publishers, trusted by pastors, you kind of people's top scholars, top 10 lists of Christian commentaries. Eight out of nine of them all, all say this exact same thing. It's like a no-brainer. The only one that doesn't agrees that most scholars think it's Emperor Nero, takes it in a slightly different direction, but in the end agrees that lots of the evidence points to this is Gematria for Emperor Nero. All right? So, okay, what does this have to do with Christmas? Two numbers, two kings. Two numbers, two kings. And in Revelation 13, John wants us to compare Nero, also the Roman emperors in general, one kind of king with a different king, the lamb. And so in that same chapter where we have about 666, and I wish we could go through the whole chapter and I could show you, it's like a comparison he wants us, while we read about what Nero was like and what the Roman emperors were like, he wants us to think about what Jesus is like. So he says this, And I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. So I want you to notice here, the beast, Nero, Roman emperors in general at the time, the Caesars, 
They are actual beasts, John is saying, but they're like the lamb, like a lamb. Lamb is the primary title for Jesus throughout. That's over and over again in the book of Revelation. Jesus is likened to a lamb. So these powerful world leaders are actually beasts, but they look like a lamb. Now the question is, how did they look like a lamb? In what way were they like Jesus? And in what way were they not like Jesus? And what does that have to do with Christmas? Well, let's talk about Roman propaganda. So much of the New Testament comes alive when you understand that New Testament writers were taking Roman propaganda and applying its titles to Jesus. First of all, many of you have probably heard the term, it's a Latin term, Pax Romana. It means in Latin, Roman peace. Right? And this was what Rome talked about herself. It was stamped on coins. It was often in speeches. The Romans and the Roman Caesars were very proud of Pax Romana. We take, they thought of everything outside the Roman Empire as the barbarians. They thought of them as wild and lawless and disorderly and warlike. And when the Romans take over, everybody becomes civilized. We build roads. In fact, we still hear the propaganda today. Historians today, we still talk about Roman era and the Roman time period as this like enlightened time period. And sure, in some ways, no doubt it was. And that's what the Romans thought of themselves as. We are the Pax Romana. We are the Roman peace. When we take over, peace, prosperity, and all that sort of stuff. Now, we Christians actually know someone who is actually the Prince of Peace. Who is that? Jesus. The answer is Jesus. I thought I would just give you kind of a easy, kind of easy one to hit that one out. See, we know Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Rome claimed, though, to be the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Now, okay, well, didn't Rome bring a lot of peace? They built roads inside the Roman Empire. Once the Romans took over, there wasn't a lot of war. Well, yeah, but unless you were one of the oppressed thousands upon thousands upon thousands, whether it be Christians or other kinds of people in the Roman Empire who weren't Roman citizens, they knew, the oppressed people in the Roman Empire knew how Roman, Rome brought about peace. They brought about peace by crushing resistance and then keeping, you, keeping the peace with fear. All rebellions were put down with absolute force. If your village didn't want to pay their taxes or wanted to, you know, rebel against Roman rule, your village got burned to the ground, all the men got crucified, and the women got sold off into slavery. That's how Rome kept the peace. So yeah, oh great, Pax Romana, but for many of the people, especially Christians living in the Roman Empire, it wasn't the kind of peace that they were looking for. It wasn't real peace. In fact, did you also know that the Caesars in the time of Revelation... The Caesars took titles for themselves, and even before Revelation, actually, that we see applied to Jesus all the time. Do you know some of the Caesars were called the world's sure salvation? They're going to bring peace. This is, this is Roman propaganda. Caesar is the world's salvation. We now talk about Jesus. The Christians came along and said, no, Caesar's not the way of salvation. Jesus is the way of salvation. Other Caesars were called blessed protector and savior. Literally the word savior. Christians came along, took those words and said, no, no, Caesar is not your savior. Jesus is. And Revelation exposes how the Roman Empire, emperors in the Roman Empire was like a lamb. They used violent and oppressive means. That's the beast part. Fear, violence, force to achieve peace.
peaceful end. So historians look back and they say, oh, wow, the Roman time was a time of prosperity. Yeah, on the backs of how many slaves, on the backs of how many Christians and other people groups that the Romans crushed. So that's a beast that looks like a lamb. Now, tale of two kings, though. Tale of two kings. You have a beast that pretends to be a lamb, that says they bring peace, that says they're the savior of the world, that says they make everything better, but actually they do it through domination and violence and fear. And then you have the prince of peace who brings peace peacefully. And the Christmas story could not be a greater contrast with the kind of king kings the Caesars were and the kind of king Jesus is. The Christmas story really brings that into sharp relief. I just want to look at two quick things. First of all, Jesus, the actual lamb, comes as a baby. Caesar would bring his peace at the front of an army, at the front of a sword. Well, we're going to have peace. You guys won't be able to fight back. Jesus comes as a baby. Now, I want you to think about that. That you cannot get more opposite from a warrior than a baby. I mean, these are the cutest most powerless, vulnerable creatures on earth. It takes a very strong God to be able to come down to earth as a baby. That takes confidence. Have you ever noticed actually how, in many cases, bullies are the most insecure people? Isn't that true? Like those of you who can remember far enough back to when you were in school? Some of you can't remember back that far? It happened. Maybe for some of you it didn't. Actually, I'm looking at a couple right now. Maybe you didn't actually go to school, but whatever. Um, but when you went to school and some of the bullies, who are the bullies? Some is, sometimes they're the people who are the most insecure. They're not actually confident about who they are. They're not confident of their value. And so they take it out. They get their self-worth from pummeling others down. It takes a really secure, strong person to be humble and weak. What does that say about our God? It takes a strong God, to say, this is how I conquer, and it doesn't look like anything you guys call conquering. So we have the beast who looks like a lamb. I'm coming, peace, I'm a savior. And then you have Jesus who comes as a baby. It's crazy. Caesar says, I'm going to have peace my way. Jesus comes and says, I'm going to enter into your shoes. But second of all, Jesus came as a baby, couldn't be more opposite from a warrior. Christmas story also tells us Jesus came without fanfare and propaganda. So the, the, the Roman Caesars, it was all about the propaganda. As I said before, you know, stamp your image on coins with, you know, Savior on there and Pax Romana and have temples and make everybody, particularly in the, in the province of Asia where Revelation was written to those churches, each of those cities had temples to the Caesar and people made you go and worship the Caesar. And then you got all this propaganda of how amazing the Caesar was. He's our savior. He brings the peace. He brings all that. God comes to earth and actually deserves the propaganda. But God comes to earth and he gets born in this little backwater town, literally, like just middle of nowhere, to a Jewish couple that has no pedigree, no influence, no power, I mean, some angels speak to some shepherds, but outside of that, there's nothing. There's no coins, and during his lifetime, there's no temples. There's nothing. It is opposite. Tale of two kings. 666, 
power, dominance, authority. God's kind of king. It's a baby. He's a lamb. He's powerless. It's incredible. And you know what it says? I have a verse here, right? Oh, did I not get the verse? Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm ahead of myself. Actually, don't look. Pretend you didn't see that. (laughs) What's cool here is 2,000 years later, though, so if you compare them, you compare whichever exact Caesar was Caesar when Jesus was born. He's got power. He's got the equivalent of billions of dollars. He's got a huge army. And you have Jesus lying in a manger. Who are you putting your money on? Who's going to outlast whom? Who's got the power? Who's got the strength? Who's got everything in their favor? Who's got the fear? Who's the most well-known, most influenced, most everything? Who's looks like a nobody? Who has nothing? Jesus. 2,000 years later, how many people still worship Nero or Domitian or any of the Roman emperors? Nobody. Those guys have zero followers. How many people are worshiping Jesus today? It's like somewhere around 2 billion. Of course, Christians are always fighting and calling other Christians not Christians, so the number varies. You're out. No, you're out. But somewhere around 2 billion Christians say, Jesus is our Savior. That's crazy. Nobody prays to Nero. Nobody prays to any Caesar, Caesar Augustus, any of them. And the baby, 2,000 years later, totally wins out. I take two lessons of hope from this. Number one, God's kingdom is not advanced through force of strength, influence, or power. Number one, we have to think about God's kingdom totally different. How does a baby beat an army? Not in any way we humans comprehend. How does a baby start a movement that's still going 2,000 years later without killing people? In fact, the only people he killed, well, he didn't kill anyone, was he put himself up on a cross and allowed himself, himself to be killed. He's the one that wins. Why? God works opposite, upside-down kingdom the way we work. And the applications of that, by the way, are astonishing when we think of our relationships, when we think of church, when we think of our businesses. How is God's power projected? Not through force of strength, influence, or power. Fact, and this is the verse I accidentally put up before, and I'll put it up. Jesus taught this. He, he didn't just teach it, he lived it, but he also did teach it. He put this into words. He said this works differently than you guys think. He said in Matthew 5, blessed are the meek. That's the opposite. No Caesar could ever have been called meek. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Look at that, inherit the earth. It's not that the meek get walked over in the end. It's that the, the, in God's universe, in God's kingdom, somehow the meek actually win. And Jesus is right. This is actually like a prophetic word. What do we see today? Nero doesn't run the earth. And Jesus is everywhere on the earth. The meek inherit the earth. In the short term, so here's the thing you have to understand, though. In the short term, beast power always looks like it's winning. At no point in Jesus' lifetime did it ever look like Jesus was winning. At no point in Paul's life did it ever look like Paul was winning against the Roman Empire, against the Jewish leaders. 
So why in our lifetime would we expect that it should look like we are winning? Yet, 2,000 years later, whose kingdom is winning? It's a long-term, meek is a long-term strategy that God uses to bring his kingdom here on earth. So that gives me a ton of hope in this Jesus who is powerful enough to be a baby. God's kingdom can't be defeated. So here's, here's the inverse. So God's kingdom cannot advance, does not advance through force of strength, influence, or power. And by the way, whenever Christians have tried to do it this way, it's always been a disaster. It's always set us back. Always. And we could go through historical, like from recent residential schools, crusades, whatever. Anytime Christians have tried to force things, always bad. Always backwards. The flip side, though, is this. God's kingdom can't be defeated through force of strength, influence, or power. So guess what? When you look around the world and see, wow, it looks like we're losing, that's exactly when you should go, yippee, blessed are the meek. It literally means happy are the meek. Happy are us who look like we're losing right now because in God's kingdom, that means long-term, we are winning. Empires have come and gone. I mean, God just yawns. Roman Empire, Soviet Empire, Nazi Empire, yawn. Empires come and go. Natural disasters come and go. Evil events and big events and small events come and go, and one thing remains the same. God's kingdom continues to grow and spread. That is a tale of two kings, and that is the message of hope that is at the core of the Christmas story. The God who is strong enough to come as a baby. Why don't you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? This has implications for us in our individual lives. The way we win, quotation marks, in our relationships is not by fighting to get our own way and making other people do what we want, whether in business or marriage or parenting. That's not how we win. That's beast power masquerading as a lamb. It's like a lamb, but it's actually a beast. That's not how we win in business. That's not how we win in church. That's not how we win in culture. We win by humility by listening, by empathy, by grace, because we're playing the long game. Father in heaven, help us get our heads around the long game. So many of us are caught in fear because we're caught up in the short game. We just look at the news and we think we're losing. Every generation of Christians that has lived has thought they were losing. But we're in the long game and the meek inherit the earth. Lord Jesus, that confidence needs to saturate deep into our hearts. We repent of the times we try to shortcut. Out of fear and anger, we try to shortcut to beast methods, trying to accomplish lamb ends. We want, to, we want to be lamb people. You came as a baby into our world. 
Send us out like babies, like sheep, innocent into the world. The meek for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast today and being part of what God is doing here at Crossview. A special thanks to those that are giving generously to this ministry. It's because of you this ministry is possible. If you enjoyed the sermon, why don't you subscribe to the platform you're listening to right now and let us know that you're listening by sharing and tagging us on social media. If you want to learn more about this ministry in our church, you can visit us at crossviewchurch.ca.